Welcome to Music Business Mindset. We are a podcast that is dedicated to helping you grow personally and professionally as an artist. We want to see you find true lasting success, financial stability, and also personal well-being along your journey. My name is David Ryan Olson. I am so glad you've joined us today. So excited to have Mr. Jason Davis on today's podcast episode. How are you doing, man? Doing great. Thanks for having me on. Oh, yeah. No, I was uh, super excited that you're going to be able to be here and speak into so many lives of independent artists today. Would love just to jump in. And why don't you just share your story? Feel free to start from the beginning. Yeah, I've been in the music industry for about 23 years now and uh, started out as a songwriter. Growing up, I was always forming bands in middle school and high school and (laughs) writing songs. Right around 16, I got really excited about writing songs that became my thing. Pretty much it was every day after school, all I would do is sit there and write songs for hours. And I did that. I never stopped doing that into my early 20s. And obviously you do something for long enough, you start getting good at it. (laughs) Hopefully. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. That is true. But um, I'd written, you know, probably over 350 songs at that point, completed, recorded a bunch of songs And one of those songs, without me trying for it or knowing about it, through people, traveled about 1,400 miles. I was living in upstate New York at the time. And the song traveled and landed on the desk of a vice president of A&R from a record label that was owned by EMI at the time. And he tracked me down. And next thing you know, about three months later, I had a song on a pro record. Song was the first single on the record, went to radio, went to number one on the radio. Because of that, the label took some other songs that I'd written. Like the A&R reached back out to me and said, hey, do you have any other songs? And (laughs) I sent some more demos and landed some more songs with that label. And then at the same time, right around that time, actually, there was another girl who was independent. And I had written some songs with somebody that I knew. And we did some demos for her. And she ended up getting a record deal on her own, not through our help, just by herself. And the label, it was Warner Brothers, they heard some of the demos that we had done and songs that we had done, and they tracked us down and asked us if we would work on her album. So next thing you know, landed probably four more songs on records. And those two records really gave me the confidence that I was good enough to do this. So I just started cold calling other record labels. I was living near New York City at the time and just started with persistence bulldozing my way into vice presidents of A&R offices at different labels and (laughs) trying to figure out how this worked. That's kind of where it started. Yeah. The way that you explained that made it sound like you just kind of wrote some songs and it took off from there. Was it really that accidental or you build it and they will come sort of a thing? Was it really that like just effortless? It was truly that accidental. I guess if you look at, you know, I wrote songs for like really intensely, wrote songs for about nine years. So you could say if during those nine years I was trying to get into the business, wanting to do it, that would have been quite the effort that I had put in. But during those nine years when I was writing, I was doing it for fun. I was doing it as a hobby. I didn't actually think that it would be possible for me to be in the music industry. So I didn't even dream it. I really didn't think normal people from small towns could get in the music business. (laughs) I didn't know anybody in the music business. So I just wrote songs for fun. They were like my little babies and it was a hobby. So there was no desire, no intention 
no thought of ever pursuing the music business because I didn't think it was possible. So it, it really was truly just my song landed on a record label's desk through people loving the song and uh, sharing the song. And I was tracked down and that's how it started. Mm. I know of people that, you know, they grind and grind and grind and they're trying and they're trying to take opportunities and nothing ever like quite works out for them. And I also know that like, you know, a lot of people also have too much of a uh, laissez-faire attitude towards like, you know, thinking, oh, well, I wrote some songs and I kind of put it out, but why isn't anybody handing me a Lamborghini right <laughs> right out of the gate? But I'm glad that you, you said that you were at least writing songs pretty much every day for nine years up until that point, because don't discount that 10,000 hours sort of principle. Obviously, that's not like a literal 10,000 hours sort of a thing, but like the principle stands that like if you do something a lot where it becomes almost second nature obviously you're going to get to a certain point yeah i did truly put in those hours as a songwriter and i do believe the ultimate key in most cases the only key that could truly open up the door is a song and usually that song is not going to be handed to you you're going to have to go dig and fight and work hard to try to get that song I think, you know, incredible songs, hit songs, songs that could get you a record deal, I think those do not come easily, normally. Like, usually you have to sweat and dig to get that kind of level of a song. I think a lot of people think they have that song, but they generally don't. To me, the ultimate key to get the door to open is the song. So you could look back and say, well, actually, I kind of killed myself to get that door to open and I killed myself to get that key. But I think what I learned from the hindsight of looking back is that I think everything's about a mindset. Again, if I had been thinking all those years, like, why is this happening? I want to do this. Why am I not breaking through? That would have been a really grueling, unbelievable nine years. But the fact that I was just, in a sense, without even fully knowing it, committed to exercising the craft, committed to growing great at the craft, which I really was. I mean, I didn't think I'd get in the music business, but I loved writing so much that I wanted to become great at it. And so I think the mindset of not expecting something's supposed to happen for me, but being committed to the craft and becoming great at the craft, to me, doors opening and success is the byproduct of becoming truly great at something. Right. It's not so much that you say, I'm going to give myself so many months to be a millionaire or whatever. It's more, you got to be in it for the long run because you love it. Because I can think of very few industries that are as brutal as the music industry. And if you don't just love it, you're going to have a hard time. Yeah. I was watching an episode of uh, Shark Tank once, the TV show. Robert, who's one of the you know investors on that show, there was somebody talking about the music industry or there was somebody pitching. I think it was an artist or something to invest in on that show. I don't know how many years ago this was, but I remember on that show, Robert said, and these are billionaires, I'm not going to invest because the toughest industry in the entire world is the music business. <laughs> and I was like, wow, man. I mean, that's that's a billionaire saying it. So it, it, is, it is a very tough business. You have to be... Pretty much for me, once the door cracked open, it was like, this is what I'm going to do with my life or I'm going to die trying. Not that I want people to be that extreme about it, but uh, there is a level of intensity that I think you have to have 
to climb the ladder in this business. Right. Absolutely. So let's keep going on your story. You're, you're writing these songs, you're getting some attention, it's opening doors. Can you walk us through this next chapter of your journey? Yeah. So I landed, I probably landed like seven songs on records in my first year. And I made money on only one of those songs. So I had seven songs on pro albums. I only made money from one of them. From my age back then and being younger, it was a good paycheck. It was good. But I think the light bulb went off that, wow, if I'm going to be a songwriter, I have to be landing songs on records all the time. I have to be a really prolific writer. And I'm going to have to write some pretty decent sized hit songs to even be able to sustain myself. And I wasn't really, I was a good songwriter, but I knew I was not the best. I knew there were songwriters that were way better than me. So there was a little bit of a uncertainty of like, what am I supposed to be doing here? But I did feel called to bulldoze my way into record labels. And through meeting the record labels, I realized that they were always looking for artists too. So I think at that point, I was just trying to get in the room. Like, how do I get back into this guy's office or this woman's office to get another meeting so I could try to learn something? And I knew that part of getting back into the offices of the record labels were to have something to pitch. There's only so many means you could do where you're pitching like average songs that I was writing. And so I started looking for artists too. And it was my very first artist I ever pitched to a record label. I had no idea what I was doing at all. I was really just trying to get back into the vice president of A&R for Sony's office. And I, I got in and he said that he liked her. He didn't like the song I wrote for her, but he liked her. So this is a senior vice president of A&R. I'm in the Sony Music building. And he asked me, what's your role with her? If I'm interested in her, what's your role? <laughs> Which is right. I mean, if you are a manager and you don't have experience you should not be managing that artist. You're going to cause problems and you're going to make mistakes and you're going to mishandle relationships. And the fact that a senior vice president, pretty much the top A&R person in that building, the fact that he would even have the conversation like I'm about to explain with me is a miracle. But he basically said, what's your role with her if, if I'm interested? And I asked him, I said, well, I don't know. Like, what should my role be? <laughs> and I didn't know... I really didn't even know what a manager did. I knew the term, but I just didn't know what a manager did. I figured it was like representing somebody, but that was all I knew. And so he goes, so what's your role with her? And I said, I don't know. What should my role be? <laughs> he goes, well, are you her manager? And I said, uh, no. Should I be her manager? <laughs> he goes, well, do you want to be her manager? I said, I mean, if you think I should be her manager, I'll be her manager. Like, yeah, sure. <laughs> and he goes, I think you should be her manager. And I said, okay, I'll be her manager. And he goes, great. He goes, let's set up a meeting. <laughs> so I walked out of the Sony building that day, which is, I mean, I don't know, it was probably 21, 22 years ago, something like that. I walked out of the Sony building that day in New York City, and I said to myself when I hit the street, Outside the building, I was like, I guess I'm a manager. <laughs> and that that was it. And I just kept figuring it out as I went. That is incredible that the head A&R of one of the biggest record companies in the world didn't just say, 
okay, cool, thanks. We're going to take her and like have fun going back to your daily life. That is some divine providence, dude. <laughs> Massively divine providence. I mean, it was totally God. Looking back, it's like, what? That doesn't even make sense. Like, <laughs> if I met an artist and I was from a label and I knew the manager had no idea what he was, what he or she was doing, I'd be really concerned about that. Even with like a relatively new artist, obviously you can take a little bit more of a gamble than like with the bigger artists. But still, if a big label is going to sign someone and put some money behind them, <laughs> you're not going to bring in the totally green guy who doesn't even know what a manager really does. I mean, no offense to, to you back in the day, but like... No, no. I mean, I, I deserve to be offended back then. <laughs> I just love that. I can't get over that. That's that's such a great story. Yeah. I mean, the, my whole thing in the music business is it was me working really hard, but it was also like so God. It was just so doors opening and Obviously, I had my fair share of like doors not opening on me and trying to figure out why they weren't opening. But uh, yeah, the whole beginning for me was just totally me being led into the industry. Well, do you think that he saw your passion and drive and he saw, OK, here's a guy who maybe doesn't know some of the specifics, but he can learn them because I see something in him. He actually did say that to me. He said, I really like you, Jason. I see something in you. I don't know if it was that meeting or another meeting I had with him. His name was Marvin Peer. He asked me once, he said, uh, how do you find these artists? Because you're always like bringing me like pretty interesting things. And I just said to him, I said, I just look. And he goes, good answer. <laughs> and he said to me, he goes, I really like you. He's like, I see something in you. So I do think that people saw that, man, like this guy's like cold calling me and he's like trying to push doors open and. And now that I've been in the business for so long and I know a lot of managers, obviously there are some great managers out there, but there's a lot of managers that are pretty laid back. They're not great communicators. Like they're not super responsive. Sometimes they're even a little hard to get a hold of. So I think, you know, them seeing somebody that was like willing to like lovingly like break down a door for an artist. <laughs> hey, we got managers managing these signed artists of ours that wouldn't do that. Yeah. Well, I, I think that does bring up a good point in that no matter what path you take within the music business, people will always need to give you some sort of a chance. Someone's going to have to take a gamble on you at some point. And if you can demonstrate that you have the drive, that's more than 90% of people have. I remember um, one of the early meetings I got was with a woman named Lee Denae who was awesome. I think she was a senior vice president of A&R for Columbia Records at the time. She had signed like John Mayer and she had signed some like really cool stuff. And um, I started calling her, cold calling her to try to get a meeting because I wanted to play her some of my songs. And I, I called her once a week. That was always my, kind of my thing was I'm going to call somebody once a week until they finally call me back. So I just kind of committed, like, I'm just going to call once a week and leave a message and leave a voicemail. And so I called her once a week for three months before I got her on the phone. And it was a lot. I mean, I wasn't stopping and I just kept doing it. And she said to me, and I was nervous, like when I finally got her on the phone, I was so nervous that she was going to be like, okay, like you're a stalker or like you're crazy. Yeah. <laughs> but you know what she said to me? I'll never forget it. She said, you know, Jason, I just want to let you know, I really appreciate your persistence. I got a meeting with her. 
she did not love anything that I pitched her. She like liked it, but she didn't love it. She didn't take anything I pitched her. But from that first meeting face-to-face with her, which lasted maybe 10 minutes, at the most 15 minutes, from that moment forward, once I met with her face-to-face, she answered every email I ever sent her for the next few years within days. She would always call me back within a few days. I could get in to see her probably within a week, week and a half at the most. And it was from me making an in-person connection. But it took me three months, once a week of calling and leaving really nice voicemails to actually get her on the phone to get that meeting. I think persistence is so vital. Can you speak into that a little bit more on how to be persistent and show your drive without necessarily being annoying or spammy? I've never been super afraid of being annoying. I feel like, well, if I'm led by passion and that annoys somebody, maybe they're not as passionate as I am. (laughs) Like, why would somebody get annoyed because somebody's passionate? And that's what persistence shows, your level of passion for what you're doing. And so I never felt that afraid of it. I kind of had a a rule that I wouldn't call somebody more than once in the same week. I just kind of stuck to that. I'd maybe wait a week and a couple of days and then email them again or call them again. In the beginning of a relationship, I was always trying to get somebody on the phone and then seeing them in person first. And then kind of emails would come after. Where I do find a lot of people, maybe because of, the intimidation of it or whatever, they lead sometimes with emails, which I don't think there's anything wrong with. But the way I got in, really got in with people was through phone calls first, trying to get that meeting. I would beg people for literally three minutes of their time. I would say to a and like, please just give me three minutes. Let me play you one song. If you don't like it, I will never bother you again. <laughs> and of course, my intention was to fully bother them for the rest of their life. But right. <laughs> I would say to people like, just give me three minutes. If I play you one song in your office and you don't like it, I will literally leave and I will never bother you again. <laughs> that in-person connection is really big. Well, do you think having that like specific and intentional ask was beneficial to say, I'm going to play you one song at the very least? You're not asking for them to like go on a a honeymoon with you, right? One of the things I see is people don't quite know what to ask. They say, okay, this is someone I may want to like, you know, talk to or be connected with better, but like, how do I actually like get in with them or start forming a relationship with them? Any tips on that? Yeah. I've always tried to know exactly what it is that I'm pitching to somebody. And I've always tried to look for opportunities and sometimes there's not opportunities, but I've always tried to look for opportunities is like, is there anything I could bring to this relationship? Is there any business idea that I could maybe help this person with? Obviously when you're high up the ladder with record labels, there's not much you can bring them besides a song or an artist. But you know, sometimes when I've met songwriters or producers, like I'm always thinking like, could I try to find them an artist to work with or Is there some way this relationship could be mutually beneficial versus me just wanting something from them? Is there something I could give to them? So I've always been very mindful of like, do I have something to actually pitch? And is it quality? Years ago, I was friends with this guy, Cabron White from Hollywood Records. He was an A&R. And I remember I was in his office once and he like was going through his mail. We actually became pretty good friends back then. And he's going through his mail and he picked up this package. He goes, this guy, everything he sends me is so bad. 
<laughs> and he just like threw it in the garbage. <laughs> and I was like, noted. Don't walk in with not good stuff. I mean, worst case scenario, walk in with something at least decent. And I've always been willing to, like, once I got in with people, I was willing to wait a while before I pitched something else. I've never been like, okay, I if I don't pitch something in three weeks from now, they're going to forget about me. I would always be like, okay, I have their number. I have their email. They know me. They made a personal connection with me. I trust that if I send them the right thing or call them about the right thing, that I'll be able to get another meeting. Quality control was always something that I felt was important too. I guess that kind of leads into my the next question I had, which is once you've had, say, an in-person meeting or you've even just kind of generically gotten coffee or lunch with someone, how do you keep those relationships alive after that? Even if you don't necessarily have like a specific song or anything to pitch, let's just say it's a good connection that's, you know, you like them as a person. How do you kind of keep that going without just asking them to coffee every week? I think part of it is being a really hard worker, always working on new things, looking for new things, digging for new things. Because if you find a new artist or you have a new song, there's always something that you could play for somebody or discuss with somebody. I've had situations where I find an artist and I send it to an A&R person or I send it to a songwriter and I'm just like, can you tell me what you think about this? Do you think this guy or this girl is good or do you think there's some potential there? So, I mean, I've hit up songwriters, producers, A&Rs, sometimes not even pitching something seriously. It's more like, hey, I met this artist. Like, what do you think about this? Do you think there's anything here? I was on the phone. This is so unrelated. So this is probably not even good where I'm going. But (laughs) I was on the phone years ago. It wasn't really me and them. It was a radio call. And it was a national radio call where a record label had set up a call with a couple of artists and a couple of label executives. And it was like you could call into this conference line. And they had tons of like program directors from radio stations on there and stuff like that. And it was pretty big people on that call. It was like CeeLo Green was on that call. (laughs) And then uh, it was Russell Simmons who started Def Jam Records. Russell was not there to talk to me. He was there to talk to these radio programs. My artist happened to be scheduled to talk to these program directors, I think, after Russell Simmons. So we had access to the call like 10, 15 minutes before. So I heard Russell Simmons get on. And this guy's a legend. And he was literally talking to these radio program directors all across the country as if they knew what was going on, and he didn't. He was so humble, and he was just like, hey, I'm getting older now, and I've been in the business for a long time. You guys are really on the front lines. You guys know what works better than even I would. So I'm on this call with you guys. I wanted to do this call with you guys to kind of share this artist with you and really get your feedback and tell me what you think of it. And I kind of knew, like... That was a sales tactic he was using because all you, you could hear all these program directors from radio stations were like, wow, the legend Russell Simmons is asking me my opinion. <laughs> I was listening. I was like, this guy is good, man. <laughs> like he's empowering all these stations to basically say like, hey, we think this is good or whatever. But I kind of learned from that. I was like, man, like you can approach people really humbly. And you don't have to approach people like you have all the answers. There's been times where I'm pitching an artist to a vice president of a label. And I'll say, look, I'm bringing it to you because I don't have all the answers. 
I think there's something here, but I want to know what you think. So I've always, ever since then, I've always tried to approach people in the industry with, with coming from a humble approach. And I know I don't always have all the answers. And I know that there's always going to be blind spots. There's always going to be little details that other people find that can make something better. So I try, I try to go into every situation like, okay, I can't say for sure that this artist should get a deal right now or they're ready for a deal. Like I'm going in humbly asking somebody what they think. I think my, my position has gone from like many years ago thinking that I had to sell it to viewing people as, okay, this is a relationship that God gave me and a friendship. And I'm going to actually ask them like, what do you think? Because if we were if we were all younger, if we were in high school, we'd be sharing music with each other like, hey, I found this new band. Like, do you like it? Do you not like it? And I've learned that if you share things with people in the industry like that, they actually respect it more. People definitely respect a humble approach. Yeah. Well, I know a lot of people have trouble walking the line between coming across as like you're trying to be braggy, you're coming across as full of yourself, but then also some people struggle with thinking their music is worthless, going too far past humble to like the point of lacking confidence and that shoots them in their foot. How do you come across as humble and open-handed, but not lacking confidence? I think how intense the passion is can lead to a quiet confidence because you know this is what you're supposed to be doing. I think knowing what you're, this is actually what I'm supposed to be doing, that level of passion leads to exuding some sort of confidence. But I think having an approach that you know you don't always have all the answers and you know that there's a lot of people in this business that are in certain positions because we were built for community. Guys need to have a wife. Girls need to have a husband. Like we were designed to need people. And I think if you can go into relationships knowing I don't have to come off like I am it or the king or I know everything. It's about coming off knowing I'm supposed to be doing this. I'm supposed to be knocking on this door, but I respect this person. I'm knocking on the door too. And and I intensely want to hear what they have to say because I value their opinion and position so deeply, confident, but with gratitude and really listening. One of the biggest mistakes I find is aspiring people in the industry, artists, whatever, you know, it is a lot of work. And when you're working on something a lot, you get really attached to it. You know, you're killing yourself to try to do what you're doing. And then somebody comes along and says, Hey, by the way, like that aspect of what you're doing is really not that good. The more attached you are to that comment, the harder it's going to be for you to grow. And the more you're able to listen and take it in, I think the easier it is to grow. So I've always tried to be very open-handed with not getting too attached to things. Like if people back in the day used to tell me something wasn't good, not my favorite thing to hear, but I would really be curious why or what could make it better. And I find that with, even with like artists that have had success that I work with, there's so many people throughout the journey that speak into things, that uncover things about the artist, whether it's a producer finding their sound, and I thought I knew their sound, and then all of a sudden this producer hits upon something. I'm like, wait a second, is that the sound? You know, just things about the artist's voice, things maybe a vocal technique that's not good for touring. Hey, this singer's singing from their throat, and Maybe I wasn't hearing that. I just feel like God uses community. So I think the desire should be to 
meet people and really create in any way possible community. And I think the more thankful you are, the more gratitude you have, the more persistence you have, the more you know that this is what you're supposed to be doing, the more intense the passion is, I think it will help draw people to what you're doing. Yeah. Let's keep going on your journey a little bit. After you started transitioning into being a manager by accident, kind of, (laughs) um, walk us through what that early season of your, your management career was like. It was exciting on some levels because like, you know, just getting into more labels and getting into like bigger offices and, but it was also challenging. I really did not know what I was doing. I desperately wanted to. There was aspects of the business. Like I had natural giftings. I had things that about my personality, about my drive, about my musical ability that were definitely things that I had been gifted with to go into this business with. So I had some natural giftings, but I had no knowledge, no wisdom. My management skills of like handling people, handling tough situations, how many forks in the road come, how you really do have to give the right answer when you're at a fork in the road. And just relationally, like how to navigate, how to communicate with a record label, how to navigate that relationship. I found that to almost be like an art form that I had to learn, you know, because there was times where like a record label would not be being straight up with me or not be being honest with me about something or selling me something that benefited the record label, but didn't benefit the artist, which is just stuff that going getting into this business, I never expected because it was like, why would they not want to benefit the artist? So just learning the complexities of the industry and how to navigate tough conversations or how to push for things, but not be a jerk, how to push for things, and not piss people off at the record label. <laughs> Those were really, really not easy lessons for me to learn. And it took a long time for me to learn. I've never considered myself a quick learner. I'm 47 now, so I've had a long time to learn. (laughs) I appear pretty wise these days, but I was a pretty slow learner. And um, some of that learning was pretty painful. And, And I think also, too, not only my unawareness, but just learning about just how life worked with business and people could be greedy or people could be dishonest or people could be doing things for their own gain and not being honest about the reasons why they're doing certain things. And I just think there was so much for me to navigate and so much for me to learn. So it was fairly painful learning some of the way, I would say. So what lessons or experiences or stories can you share from that era of growing pains? I think the biggest one that I learned was when I first started, all I kept thinking about was I have to get to the top of the mountain. Because at the top of the mountain is where all the biggest people are. And where the biggest people are, that's where deals will happen. That's where it'll be easier to get somebody attention. That's where you maybe you could get more record deals more easily. It seemed like business like moved more at the top of the mountain. So everything was like, I got to get to the top of the mountain. Got to get to the top of the mountain. For years, for like at least 10 years all I thought about was top of the mountain. Once I got to the top of the mountain, and not to say that I couldn't have been bigger myself, but I was at least surrounded by people at the top of the mountain. This probably is very naive, and it was very naive, but when I was coming up in my early 20s, like I knew from my past that kids could be mean, you know, in school or middle school or 
but I didn't realize fully that adults could be mean. I kind of always looked at adults as like, they're the ones that have it figured out. And like, I'm like the 12 year old or 10 year old and the adults have it figured out. And then I, you know, I got into adulthood and I got into the music business. And I started realizing, wait a second, like this guy just like literally like ripped somebody off or this guy like just lied to an artist's face or this guy's telling an artist that they're great and they're not. Wow. A guy from Universal once like had a real estate scam. Literally a VP of A&R from Universal years ago was trying to get people to invest like 50 grand in homes in Las Vegas that didn't exist. <laughs> so, I mean, just like learning things like that was just like, wow, whoa, wait, it's not just about the top of the mountain. Like, yes, you do have to meet successful people. You have to meet people that know what they're doing. You have to meet people that are really in the business. You do have to meet people that have some sort of track record eventually. But the equation that I always missed was they have to have the right heart. I've found that that is the single toughest combination to find in the music business. Somebody that is successful, does have some sort of track record, knows what they're doing, but actually really does love people well and care about people besides themselves. It's a tough combo to find, but that's the combo that really gives people getting into the business a chance. But, you know, weeding through all the people that either don't really know what they're doing, haven't had success, and not knowing who those people really are or aren't, you know, because obviously a lot of people are saying that they've done more than they have. So I think for an artist, it's just super hard or anybody in the business, it's just super hard to navigate that. And then, you know, also finding that that person that could truly help them that actually does know what they're doing, but actually like will not do the wrong thing by them. I think that was the single biggest lesson, toughest thing to find and navigate for me. Yeah. So do you think during that time that your desire for achievement to reach the top of the mountain started to overshadow your love of music a little bit. Yes. It led to a lot of personal problems. It led to a lot of problems in my life. None of it was good. And I think, you know, it took having to go through that to return to, okay, why do I do this? It's because when I was 12 years old, my dad accepted God with me a year before he died. But when I was 12, my dad was beating me every day and lived in a very dysfunctional home. And I went downstairs to my parents' kitchen at 12 to kill myself. I knew where they kept all their pill bottles. And, and so I took all the pill bottles in the middle of the night, put it on my parents' kitchen counter, and I said, I'm going to do this. And I heard two things in my head. I heard that if I take the pills, I'll escape the abuse. And I said to myself, that's what I want. I truly believe that that was the devil. And then I heard in my head right after that, I heard, if you take the pills, you'll never be able to listen to Def Leppard again. <laughs> and I do believe that that was God. And I think God knew what a 12-year-old boy needed to hear to put the pills away. And God in later on showed me, you know the power of music. Like, you put pills away. Like, you didn't kill yourself one night because of how much you loved an album and how much you loved the band. And God showed me that through torturing music, through torturing an album, through pushing a singer to be the best that they could be, or an artist, band, whatever, that it can be used to really save people's lives. So that's always been like 
now that I look back with clarity and hindsight, it was returning to my love of music and also returning to the purpose of why do I want to do this? Yeah. Well, I know so many artists feel like if they just make it, quote unquote, make it, maybe they're headlining tours or driving Lambos, they'll finally be happy. No. Can you share a little bit about your experience in that front? When I didn't know God and it was all about me and trying to gain success, the more success I gained, the more miserable and empty I became. That's not why God created us. God created us to use our gifts to love others and to serve others and to be there for others. Like you're doing a podcast trying to give people information and help people not make mistakes and maybe help protect people, make it easier for people, whatever. Like you're using a passion to serve other people. I think that's where the blessing in life is. That's where the richness of life is. I've learned that if you're doing this for you and for fame and glory, you might get it, you may not get it, but if you get it, you're going to be so disappointed because it does not fulfill at all. It does not fill the void. That void of what you're trying to fill will still be there. I mean, I truly believe that that void was designed by God to be filled solely by him. And I believe as humans, because kind of deep down inside, we want to be God. We try to fill that void with everything but him. Yeah. So what would you say to an artist that is trying to, recalibrate away from fame and, you know, glitzy success into, you know, having a little bit more of a sustainable career in music. They feel like it's what they're called to do, but how do they keep their intentions good? From an intention standpoint, I tell singers often enough that I remember it, you're going to be playing a concert one day and there's going to be a 13 year old boy or girl in the audience that's planning on killing themselves. And because they came to see you or were brought to see you because they found you, they're not going to kill themselves. So when you're sitting there doing the monotonous practice, doing the monotonous work, doing the monotonous job, not getting pats on the back, questioning, why am I doing this? Do it for that boy or do it for that girl. Like put in the extra hour of practice into your craft that day for that boy or for that girl, because that boy or that girl will be there. And that's real. And it's going to happen. Even if it's a small show, that moment's going to happen. I always try to position artists to think of it from a perspective of like, you were called to do this. The gift is to show people what the music in heaven sounds like. A glimpse of it, a taste of it, what it feels like. Like people eat cake and they say, oh, this cake is like a slice of heaven. Because that's what the spirit wants. We all want heaven. We're all trying to find comfort. The person taking the pain pills is looking for heaven. It's called getting high because it's about wanting heaven. And so I think anybody that's been called to music is called to music because the gift that you're unwrapping for somebody else and showing to them is a very small taste, a very small window into a very small glimpse of what the choirs in heaven sound like. The more you water that seed and work on that seed and focus on that seed like a laser beam every day and water it every day, that tree grows and the fruit of that talent, you know, singing or drums or whatever you're doing, the fruit that grows off that tree is a glimpse of heaven. And when people experience that fruit, they will pull a gun out of their mouth. So was there ever a moment for you that made you realize that you were chasing the wrong thing and you needed to to move your life back on track and to 
get your priorities straight and all that. Yeah. So 14 years ago, I second time in my life, I had a desire to kill myself. I checked myself into a hotel room in Los Angeles to kill myself. At the height of your success? Yes. I was miserable. I was married. Marriage was just not good. It was pretty clear to me I was going to fall apart. I was going to go through a divorce. I was going to lose a lot of what I had worked for. I thought to myself, man, if this is it, if this is the payoff for killing yourself for all these years, if the payoff is void and I've kind of tasted everything on this earth there is to taste and I'm still this miserable... I checked into a hotel room to kill myself, and um, that was definitely my rock bottom in life. And miraculously, it's a pretty cool story, but I ended up checking out of the hotel room because I got a phone call from somebody that wanted to work with me. And I ended up checking out of the hotel room and started finding God, started reading the Bible for the first time in my life. And that really, I guess you could say, like recalibrated the thoughts. Yeah. Wow. Thanks for sharing that, too. What were some of the first things you did when you decided you weren't going to be chasing fame and everything again? Started begging God for wisdom, started begging God for clarity and for the path and for the right relationships, for better relationships. Like, started begging God for people that loved people. I started begging God for people that were successful. Maybe they're at the top of the mountain, but they are successful, but they have a heart that cares about other people. So I think that was the biggest shift was asking God to lead me to the right relationships and download wisdom to me on how do I do this? How do I not end up with the wrong people? Well, I've heard people say you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with or variations on that. So having good people around you that aren't sharks and two-faced is going to go a long way for you. Man. And, you know, it's, it's hard to find those people. Especially in the music business, since everybody's out for themselves. Yeah, it's so hard to meet high-character people. My first 19 years in the music business, I was not surrounded by anybody with high character. All the high-character people came after I started praying. So that's the only thing I know how to do. Yeah. So let's call this your music career 2.0. <laughs> what have you been up to <laughs> now? You're still managing artists. You're still getting yourself involved in other stuff. Yeah. We had an artist last year named Marlo from Australia that's doing really well now that we developed. There's a new girl, Ann Wilson, who's a Christian artist. And she just broke, literally last week, she broke a Billboard record. She's the first solo female Christian artist to ever have her song go to number one on the Billboard charts since Billboard came into existence. So obviously very involved in that right now because that's she's literally exploding. And developing a couple other artists that, that we're excited about, that's pretty much what these days look like right now. Okay. So as a manager and developer, obviously you can't work with everybody. <laughs> if you had infinite bandwidth, I'm sure you would. But, you know, what are some of the top tips for artists who are trying to get established, at least more professionally established in their careers? What advice would you have for someone who's starting out? I think the biggest thing is to throw yourself out there. I mean, there's so many tools with social media now, with TikTok and Instagram, and just constantly throwing yourself out there. I, I think if you're really starting at the bottom and you don't have anybody around you on your team, I think doing covers all the time, constantly putting out video content on TikTok, Instagram, maybe even YouTube. But I just think being on the social platforms and really working it, maybe doing uh, duets with other people on socials and 
you see people grow audience, all the influencers grow audience by doing videos with other influencers. So I think finding other artists to do things with that if you find a video of somebody doing something and they have a, you know, a growing audience, maybe around the same size as yours, you could probably reach out to them, maybe even reach a little higher and see what happens. And then if you can grow it, it takes one viral video on TikTok. Like we developed a girl named Kings last year who got a pop deal in December and she's got like 5 million followers on TikTok now. And when she started her TikTok page within the first, I don't know, it was a month or so, she did a video where she went through a Starbucks drive-thru and sang her order to the guy taking it and filmed it. I mean, that video went viral. And then what did she do? Every couple of weeks, she did another drive-thru video of her singing an order to somebody. And, you know, next thing you know, she's got two to three million followers on TikTok. She had a couple of good songs, too. And we got hit up by a label, a couple of labels, actually. And um, that's literally from her singing an order of Starbucks in the drive-thru lane, like just being creative, putting herself out there. So I think the social platforms are really big. If you put yourself out there a lot, it's like kind of like throwing like bait in the water. Yeah, you're going to pull up a lot of old sneakers and soda cans and weird people, but you also might catch the right person's attention. Yeah. So obviously that works if your goal is to get signed and whatnot. What about for an independent artist? How does that play into what you see as more of the the independent musician's business model? Because just having Instagram followers and TikTok followers doesn't pay your bills. Right. I think, and again, I, I am definitely skewed way more towards like the record label side of things and how do you get the deal. And But I'm friends with one married couple. They book all their own shows. They have a van. They travel all over America. They've got this booking thing down to a science. They have programs that could send out hundreds of emails in one shot to different venues. And the wife spends a lot of their days booking. He spends time on like the songwriting and producing songs. And they're making $120,000 a year. Literally independent, just booking their own shows, making their own music. So I think writing songs, producing songs, booking shows, if you could get any ins with TV and film licensing opportunities. I do know some independent artists that make a decent amount of money off of TV and film licensing. They're just constantly pitching themselves to different companies. And those are some of the ways that I see it done. Yeah. Okay. Last question before we wrap up. What is something you wish you had when starting out your music career, either as an artist or as a manager? I guess just more awareness to be really even keeled in business. My dad taught me something. In the very beginning of my music career, there was an artist that was trying to steal one of my songs that was signed to a label. And I was like, I was so upset about it. And I felt like, you know, this person's like stealing my child. And I was very angry about it. And um, the label wouldn't give me the artist's phone number. I felt very, very frustrated. And I was definitely like not handling it well personally. And then with who I was talking to at the label. And, and I remember my dad said to me, he said, Jason, he said, in business or in life, but in business, the second you lose you're cool with somebody. You immediately become the jerk, even if they're at fault. In business, he's like, the second you use a bad word, the second you call somebody a name, the second you raise your voice, all the weight shifts off of them if they've done something wrong. 
and lands on you and you're th- they walk out saying what a jerk so i was at um a lunch a few years ago with an A&R and we were working on a project together. And I always ask people usually towards the beginning, like, how do you think I'm doing so far? Like anything you could see that I could be better at, you know, I, I ask labels that question. And the A&R said to me, he's like, you know, he's like, I think you have the number one thing that a manager needs to have. And you're, you're very even keeled about things. Like you never react too strongly in any direction. Like you're very calm if something's blowing up around you, like you're pretty chill. If somebody's, you know, raising their voice, like you're calm. I didn't really know that in the beginning, how important it was to stay emotionally centered and not react to things and stay calm. And then I think just being a little less self-focused and learning it's important in life to like love people and care about them sometimes even more than you do yourself. Those are a couple of things. Absolutely. Well, Jason, thank you so much for coming on the show today and giving us insights into your story and all of the the goodies along the way. Really appreciate it. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you. Thank you so much. So go look up Jason Davis, any place people can connect with you. We have a management company, Noble Management, noble-management.com. We have a company called 117. That's O-N-E, O-N-E, number com. And a couple other things as well. But those those are probably the two main places. Awesome. Well, dude, thanks so much. So just as we wrap up this episode here, two favors for you as our listeners. One, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, would you go ahead and just give us a quick five-star review? It really helps the show rank higher. And secondly, if you want to find true and lasting success as an artist, we'd love for you to sign up for our free workshop on building a sustainable music career. Just go to musicbusinessmindset.com slash workshop to sign up for that. But for now, that's it. And we will see you next time.